0: This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay, and the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram. Check it out. I've got some really good summer deals, and check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch cords. Cool. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Greetings listeners, it is I. It's Farmer days, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian-leaning. Once more, we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again, we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM.
1: Lynn Thompson. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby. Chapter 20. The Volcano and it bubbles and seeds and hisses and roars as when fire is with water commixed and comblending and a hell molten surf thunders wild on its shores while a red-tumbling flood from its caverns outpours hurling hills from their place and the mountains downrending so the chaos eternal born of fury infernal boils and belches and rumbles unrained. And unending It is an axiom that there are three misstatements in the popular description of a crab a fish of a red color that runs backwards question what is a volcano? Answer a volcano is a burning mountain from the summit of which issues smoke and flames old geography the writer remembers the surprise he felt when a lad of nine full of childish confidence in the infallibility of textbook misinformation on reading in prescott's conquest in mexico that cortez obtained sulphur to replenish his stock of powder by lowering one of his soldiers into the crater of he wondered how so reputable a historian as prescott had been induced to credit such an extravagant yarn on the part of the spanish chronicler To his youthful fancy, fired by the teachings of primary geographies, a volcano was a sort of chimney to a titanic iron furnace in full blast. Indeed, he would have supposed it safer to descend into an iron furnace than into a crater. He speculated long on the matter, and wondered if fireproof dresses were known in those days. No small part of the non-travelling public has similar misconceptions of the character of volcanoes, And to obtain the truth it is not so necessary to learn as to unlearn the description quoted from the old textbook is false in every particular the mountain cannot be said to be burning any more than melted lead nor does anything that answers to either smoke or flame issue from it be it known to all that the greatest portion of the surface of an active crater is usually covered with a solid crust in which there may be a small fiery lake or in a secondary cone or crater into many craters it is possible therefore to descend and into one volcano of the mediterranean sea an enterprising scotch firm have long had quite remunerative chemical works the name is taken from one of the lipari islands a small group near sicily which is known to the ancients as volcano when the romans imported the grecian god hephaistos to be their chief blacksmith they assigned him volcano as his forge and rechristened the lame old fellow with the adjective appellation of vulcanus men much prefer the marvellous or mysterious to the true and while their reverence is of a merely superstitious sort the reverence of the ignorant often surpasses that of the learned The superstitious people readily manufactured a myth to explain the awe-inspiring demonstrations of volcanoes. And the myth itself, because of its religious character, would discourage any attempt to closely investigate volcanic phenomena as sacrilege and impiety. There are similar volcano myths in the island and Asiatic world so firm was the belief of the sandwich islanders in the certainty of dire vengeance upon all who trespass on the domain of pele the goddess of Kilauea, that when a princess of the blood royal safely defied the goddess ate her sacred berries and threw rocks into her boiling lake the people at once abandoned their whole race of gods if there was no pele they knew of no god such reasons prevented the ancients and the barbarian world from obtaining any light on volcanic action similar causes operated with equal force to hinder investigation during the middle and dark ages christian teachers seized upon them as convenient openings to the abode of eternal torment the aryan heretic the emperor theodosius was assigned to volcano while poor anne boleyn for whose sake the defender of the faith defied the pope was sent by the latter to Mount Etna as the shortest route to her destination. Similar ideas are noticed among semi-barbarous races. The Aztecs deemed popocatepetl the greatest of their volcanoes, to be the place of punishment for wicked rulers. These gentry were supposed to cherish no good will toward their subjects whose complaints had brought them to that place of torment, and to be always seeking opportunity for vengeance. The people held them in great awe, and were wont to invoke the aid of the gods when it became necessary to travel near the volcanoes. It is related that the high priest, Tezozomoc was wont to give aloe leaves inscribed with sacred characters to such persons. These leaves were amulets to preserve the wearer from harm. Southy uses the story in Madoc quote, So ye may safely pass between the mountains which in endless war hurtle with horrible uproar and thrush of rocks that meet in battle. End quote. This mountain was in eruption when Cortes reached Tlascala on his march to Mexico. It was believed to bode evil to the people of Anahuac. Learning the native superstition, Diego de Ordaz, captain of artillery, determined to beard the demons in their den, and with some companions ascended the mountain. Their safe return convinced the natives that the Spaniards were in league with the spirits, and did much to dishearten them. In memory of this feat, the Ordaz family has a volcano pictured on its coat of arms. The Javanese, call their greatest volcano, Mahameru, Meru. in the Sanskrit mythology, was the home of Brahma, and the Malays, having adopted the legend, consider their greatest volcano the fittest symbol of his throne and power. Virgil's Aeneid affords a passage containing the Roman myth concerning Mount Etna, and showing that the people of Virgil's day were acquainted with the phenomena of that mountain. Thus Dryden has translated, quote, The flagging wind forsook us with the sun and wearied on cyclopean shores we run The port capacious and secure from wind is to the fort of thundering Joined by turns a pitchy cloud she rolls on high and flakes of mountain flames that arch the sky Oft from her bowels massy rocks are thrown and shivered by the force come piecemeal down Oft liquid cakes of burning sulphur flow, fed from the fiery springs that burn below. Enceladus, they say, transfixed by Jove, with blasted limbs came trembling from above, and where he fell, the avenging father drew this flaming hell, and on his body through. As often as he turns his weary sides, he shakes the solid hill, and smoke the heaven hides." This conception was borrowed from the Greeks, one of whose poets has told us, How shaggy-breasted Typhon lay from sea-girt Cuma to Trinacria's bay. Yet even among the ancients, an occasional great mind disregarded popular superstition and enunciated just and rational views upon the matter. The elder Pliny lost his life in an effort to observe closely an eruption of Vesuvius but the ideas advanced by these men were speedily forgotten and the exact scientific examination of volcanoes is of the past hundred years. The great Italian Spallanzani, being the first to publish a series of valuable observations on the volcanoes of his own land. The ancients were acquainted only with the few active volcanoes distributed about the Mediterranean Sea, and the casual thinker might hence suppose their opportunities for observation were quite limited. But volcanic principles are the same everywhere, differing only in violence. In the Lepari Islands is situated the volcanic cone of Stromboli, which has been in a state of constant activity, though very mild for at least two thousand years this affords excellent opportunities for study and much of our most valuable information on the topic is derived from careful observation of it when the wind is steady in any quarter a person may sit to windward for hours within a few yards of the boiling mass while the noxious vapors and gases are borne away in the other direction the expulsive agent is in all cases steam mingled to a greater or less degree with other vapours or gases its operation may be simply illustrated pure water does not readily boil over in any open vessel of ordinary dimensions but if the vessel be very deep in proportion to its width and the heat is applied at the base only it boils over more readily now if instead of water we substitute porridge thick molasses, or any similar thick or viscid material, the bubbles of steam rise slowly, and if rapidly generated, they force the matter out at the top, ere they escape. Such bubbles as reach the top burst, throwing tiny particles of the mass into the air. How great a proportion of the material expelled from volcanoes consists of steam and other gases is not easy to determine. But that the quantity of vapor is enormous is indisputable. Vesuvius is noted for the pine tree of vapor that overhangs it. The ascending steam and gases on reaching an upper atmosphere as light as themselves spread out horizontally in every direction, thus much resembling in outline the stone pines that are a prominent feature in the Neapolitan landscape some effort has been made to connect volcanic eruptions with atmospheric pressure for say the theorists a fall of two inches in the barometer removes a pressure of over two million tons from each square mile a sufficient answer to this is that this after all is only one pound to the square inch while the force that can cast up volumes of melted matter from a great depth must needs be many tons to the square inch clearly these gentlemen would perch us on a sort of universal firebox and poise the lid on a hair-trigger but heavy rainfalls and terrific thunderstorms are almost invariable accompaniments of explosive eruptions that these are the results and not the cause of volcanic action is clear An electrical machine was invented by sir william armstrong in which electricity was generated by forcing steam at great speed through a narrow orifice this same principle would produce volcanic thunderstorms the immense volumes of vapour reaching the open air must rapidly cool and be precipitated as rain the italians dread these torrents sweeping down immense quantities of mud more than they do the streams of lava if an eruption causes an immediate fall of two inches of rain over an area seven miles square it will be found that such a rainfall amounts to more than seven millions of tons of water yet the rainfall often is greater and the area affected is larger while it is not to be supposed that the entire volume of vapour cast forth is at once precipitated on the earth This computation cannot be assumed as anything more than a mere illustration of the tremendous forces brought into operation. The solid substances emitted by volcanoes are popularly styled ashes, cinders, or scoria and lava. But what is called ashes would be more appropriately named dust, for it is merely finely divided lava and in no way resembles genuine ashes lavas present a genuine resemblance to the slag and clinkers of smelters and brick kilns but vary considerably in appearance and chemical composition we need not touch this question further than to state that oxygen forms nearly one-half the weight of all lavas silicon one-fourth of most and aluminum one-tenth from 15 to 20 percent is made of various others magnesium calcium iron sodium and potassium being the most common hence the compounds present are always of the class known to chemists as silicates substances requiring great heat to melt these from being long melted abound more or less in crystals but if any one remelts them and cools them suddenly the result is a simply glassy mass with no trace of crystals Scoria or cinders differ from ordinary lava only in the peculiarity of having partially crystallized in some portions and then stiffened or solidified while large bubbles were yet imprisoned or in the act of bursting thus leaving the mass very ragged and cellular but if the lava contains no readily formed crystals the imprisoned bubbles of steam slowly rise to the surface and being greatly elongated by the flowing of the lava produce the beautiful material known as pumice. It is to lava exactly what froth or foam is to water. Usually it is much lighter coloured than the lava on which it floats, for the same reason that well-worked molasses candy is nearly white. They both contain a vast number of minute air bubbles. Pumice floats on water, and its decomposition being generally very slow, it drifts about the sea currents and is often found thousands of miles from any volcanic region. In the immediate neighbourhood of volcanoes, it often accumulates on the sea to such an extent that vessels can hardly force their way through it. In the Sunda Islands, it has been seen on the sea three feet in depth. During the year 1878, the accumulation of pumice near the Solomon Islands was so great that it took ships three days to force their way through sometimes such masses accumulate along the sometimes such masses accumulate along the coastline to such an extent that a person cannot readily tell where the shoreline is one may land and walk about on the great floating raft of pumice unable to guess within even a mile of the actual shore deep sea soundings show that the entire ocean bottom is covered more or less with the pulverized pumice and volcano dust. From the wide distribution, it is not probable that the layer attains any great thickness. The Mangayans of the South Pacific told the earlier missionaries of a feat of one of their heroes, which at first was unaccountable. This demigod, Maui, a sort of Pacific Hercules, raised the sky to its present position. Not getting it high enough to suit him. He put his head between the legs of his old father Ru, and Heaved him and the half-raised sky up together Ru stuck fast among the stars and Maui left him there till his body dropped to pieces and his bones fell over the ground below To prove the truth of their story. They brought the missionaries bits of pumice which they said were the bones of Ru. singularly enough the white porous stone looked much like bone the myth had been invented by the simple folk to explain the origin of pumice the ashes of volcanic dust is excessively minute and in consequence readily penetrate crevices that are hardly visible professor Bonney, examining dust thrown out by cotopaxi has calculated that it would require from four thousand to twenty five thousand particles to make up a grain in weight The substance known as tufa is merely volcanic dust or ash upon which rain has fallen while the former was still hot the resultant paste solidifies into a porous and loosely compacted rock why some volcanoes nearly always throw out dust and fragments while others throw out mere molten streams was for a time not clearly understood some suggested The dust was a result of the continual collision of fragments as they rose and fell, and hence would increase in quantity as the eruption continued. This clearly would not meet the case of volcanoes which, without showing any previous sign of activity, burst into action with tremendous volumes of dust. It was at length noticed that dust and fragments always were accompanied by tremendous explosions, While eruptions of melted lava were far more quiet, shocks being few, and the explosions insignificant as compared with the former. This gave a clue to the mystery. Many liquids and solids have the power of absorbing vast quantities of gas. Under pressure, their absorbing powers may be vastly increased. Sometimes the property appears only at high temperatures. Silver, when melted, absorbs twenty-two times its volume of oxygen. If suddenly cooled, the oxygen is given off with a rapidity verging on explosion. This is called the spitting of silver. Tiny cones and melted streams appear on the cooled surface, volcanoes in miniature. The same property belongs to the oxide of lead and some other metals. Now water can be made to absorb more than a thousand times its bulk of ammonia, More than 500 times its bulk of hydrochloric acid. Alcohol may absorb 300 times its volume of sulfurous acid. Charcoal may absorb 100 times its volume of ammonia, 85 times its volume of hydrochloric acid, 65 times its volume of sulphuretted hydrogen, 55 times its volume of sulfurous, and 35 times its volume of carbonic acid. Iron, steel and melted sulphur absorb many gases. We have already seen that immense volumes of gases are thrown off in volcanic action. Now if a column of lava rises comparatively slowly in its chimney, the imprisoned gases rapidly escape, producing violent boiling, but not a positive explosion. But if it rises very rapidly, the sudden removal of the pressure causes so sudden an expansion of the compressed gases in its upper portion as to amount to a tremendous explosion, which reduces the lava to microscopic dust. This very principle was made practical use of in a mechanical contrivance invented to make paper pulp out of common cane, such as the farmer's boy delights in for a fishing pole. The hard, woody fibre was placed in a powerful iron cylinder full of water. A strong liquid being adjusted, the whole was heated far above the boiling point of water. Naturally, every cell would be forced full of moisture by the immense pressure. After some hours heating, the lid was suddenly removed and by the sudden expansion of the water into steam, the cane was blown to atoms. A beautiful product of the Volcano of Kilauea is the substance known as Pele's hair. Small particles of glass shot violently into the air leave behind them long glittering filaments like gossamers. Birds often build their nests of these beautiful threads. Man, taking a hint from nature, has learned to manufacture the glass hair for himself by passing jets of steam through the molten slag of iron furnaces. It much resembles cotton wool, and is used for packing boilers and piston-heads and similar purposes. The appearance of fire at the summit of a volcano is rarely ever real flame. Any who has seen the peculiar appearance occasioned by brilliant illumination on a moist or foggy evening may readily perceive the cause. The phenomenon, popularly known as the sun-drawing water, is of the same character the immense cloud of vapor ascending from the volcano glows with the light sent up from the vault mass below so it may be seen brilliant by night and only a dark cloud by day stromboli has been called the lighthouse of the mediterranean in constant action the brilliant light at night slowly fades then suddenly breaks out as bright as before this alternating results from the bursting of bubbles in the crater which expose a new, hot surface. This rapidly cools, then another bubble bursts, and so the process continues. This may have suggested the alternating light now in common use in great lighthouses. In the Galapagos, and other volcanic islands of the Pacific, occurs another curious feature of volcanic action. Some places abound in seeming mounds or domes, which may be sometimes readily broken in with a heavy stone. These are produced by bubbles which partially cooled when the lava below found some rent or outlet in another quarter and flowed away, leaving the solidified bubble. Sometimes the cavern left by the retreating lava abounds in strange beauties. A sailor who, with a comrade, explored one of these volcanic caverns gives the following account of it. In a sharp, deep valley of Albemarle, we had broken in the roof of a bubble, and as we looked in, we saw we had opened the way into a tunnel about fifteen feet in width and extending either way as far as we could see from our position. By the lights which entered from above, we made out the floor as about twenty feet beneath us, and that the walls were curiously marked with columnar forms. My companion, who had dabbled in the sciences, proposed that we should take an underground view of volcanic action and appearances. So on the following day, provided with a couple of lamps, a coil of knotted line, and a couple of waistlines and iron poles for staves, we proceeded on our exploration. We descended with the knotted rope around our bodies, and stuck our feet into the rough side, lighted in our way by a single lamp. We carefully watched for any side-openings which might confuse us or lead us astray in returning, but we saw none and felt safe. It soon became evident that the tunnel had not been formed by a rent of the mass after cooling, but rather by the molten lavas having drained away after a crust had formed upon it. This may account for the singular and beautiful formations by which we found ourselves surrounded. After proceeding some distance through a passage, with a pretty uniform width of fifteen to twenty feet and of about equal height, we paused to examine the formation of the cavern. The dim light of our lamps illuminated the pilastered walls, and a roof raftered and groined with straight and curved beams of crystalline structure many feet in length. Some of these were of a reddish appearance, and others had a vitreous lustre, resembling immense crystals, in places broken into the semblance of foliage, which reflected an olive-green light. The gloomy splendour of this solemn architecture was relieved by the gold or amber reflections of crystals of sulphur, which, like marigold or sunflower, gleamed in the passage. The broad bases of the pilasters were enriched with counterfeits of fern, palms, and growths intricate and delicate, as the pencilling of the frost spirit's pictures but these metallic pictures under the limning of the fire fiend have been inlaid with the brilliant facets of igneous materials green and brown in tint tempted onward by the increasing beauty of the scene our lamp revealed new objects of interest in the increasing luster of the arched ceiling and the carved and painted walls Our lamp was multiplied by the sparkle from the faces of unknown minerals. In places, the passage was divided by central columns of basalt crystals, which terminated in curves and were in form and tracery varied beyond man's power. The rude goth for his cathedral, the Muslim for his mosque, the celestial for his pagoda might have drawn inspiration from this solemn portal to nature's vast workshop. As we advanced further into the recesses of the mountain, the character of the cave changed. The angular, crystalline forms which indicated the sudden withdrawal of the molten matter, or the deposit of elements sublimed by intense heat, yielded to smooth and rounded structures like the worn rocks of the riverside, giving the impression that the walls had served as a sluice to fiery torrents pouring from the volcano. A few steps farther showed us the singular curtain-like foldings of a substance resembling lamp-black. Absolutely without lustre, and absorbent of every ray of light, it was present, as it were, only to the touch. With certain misgivings under this curtain of gloom, we entered a cavern, the form or extent of which could only be known by touch of hands, for no possible brilliancy of light would command an answering reflection from the absorbent surface. Broken as was the surface to the touch, to the eye it was without form. The floor was invisible, and we were guided in our steps by our staves alone. It was like stepping into primal chaos before light and form had birth. A profound chasm seemed to yawn at our feet, yet the rocky floor rang to the blow of the staff, and with cautious tread we proceeded the flame of the lamp met no responsive glow save from the two intruders who stood awe-stricken in this strange emptiness it stood in the still blackness unflickering like a solid feeling the broken walls the hand was met by an oily softness the eye was useless and even the touch now failed to guide us solid walls were not to the eye Rocky barriers seemed simply impenetrable darkness to the hand from repeated contact with sooty walls. We also became covered with this strange light absorbing powder. We also became covered with this strange light absorbing powder until we were enveloped in an invisible mantle and also passed from each other's sight. I alone answered to I in their reflections of light too deeply impressed for conversation we stood still with outstretched hands my comrade asked at length may it not be even so in the valley of the shadow of death and we looked for strength into each other's eyes and linked our arms that we might have the companionship of touch we were now thoroughly frightened and turned to retrace our steps but which way we stood in a sea of nothingness Locked in the foundations of the mountain the walls were lost to the sight and were nothing to the touch We stooped to the deep dust of the floor and held the flame to read our footprints But the soil absorbed the light as the sand of the desert does the raindrop We reached forward and the hand failed to meet the wall We reached downward there too was empty space the light showed no defining edge between the solid rock and the void We swung the lamp from the brink on which we lay it revealed nothing We dropped a heavy stone into the chasm and listened for the rebound No sound was returned as it sank into the profound We cast another stone across to test the width, but this too was lost to the senses Silently they passed away as a mist wreath on the hillside and then we knew we had been preserved from death a careless step and we had found a grave in the depths of the world's foundations we realized that we were lying in trembling safety on the threshold of the extinct volcano and lifting our useless eyes from the impenetrable blackness the awful whisper lost passed between us we were afraid to move but the wasting oil of our lamp warned us that time must not be lost Presently, our ears caught the heat of surf on the rock as the tide came in, and following this direction, we finally reached the entrance, almost fainting from joy when we stood beyond this chamber of gloom once more, we stood under the wondrous tracery and reflections of the outer gates of the interworld of mysterious. End quote a most thrilling experience and one giving a fine picture of what may be found in the mysterious depths of a lava bubble. In some cases the bubbles are very thin and an unwary passer might be suddenly plunged into unfathomable depths should he tread on one. Usually, however, they are formed over horizontal currents or passages. We have endeavoured to give the well-established facts concerning the principles of volcanic action it only remains ere we leave this phase of the subject that we notice the one point on which as yet our knowledge is not clear that point is the source of the heat which produces the remarkable effects several theories are advanced one class of scientists believes that the earth is a mass of molten matter with only a thin outer shell of cooled material That a very high temperature exists at no very great distance from the surface is beyond a doubt. The observations made in mines and artesian wells show that the average increase in the temperature is one degree for every 55 feet in depth. One noted variation exists in the deep wells at Budapest in Austria where the temperature increased up to 3,000 feet. But beyond that depth it became cool again. The Comstock Lode in Nevada, the richest mineral vein in the world, is nearly at the limit of practicable working, the normal temperature being as high as 150 degrees. Even if it be conceded that the material of the Earth is a molten mass, there will be two theories to explain it. One, that the Earth was originally in a state of fusion and was slowly cooling, the other that the great pressure from without keeps an otherwise solid center greatly compressed and heated and consequently liquid either supposition is based on well-established facts but it does not appear clear that the molten globe with a cool shell can settle the entire question the objections to this are several one the complete absence of uniformity in the increase of heat as we descend While the total average is as given above, the variations are so many and vast that there does not seem to be any general law, as there should be if the molten interior possessed the least uniformity. In some shafts the increase is one degree for 20 feet, in others one for every 100. In some the temperature increases much more rapidly at great depths, in others much less rapidly. A second objection is the vast difference in the character of lavas, even in districts very near each other. Thirdly, there seems no definite connection between volcanoes in the same region. Two adjacent ones may exhibit very different conditions. Mauna Loa is about 10,000 feet above Kilauea, a great crater of the same mountain. Yet the upper is often in a violent state of eruption when the latter is perfectly quiet it would be difficult to conceive how these are supplied from the same source. If the interior were a molten mass in a state of equilibrium, as would be necessary if the uniformity of its motions in the solar system were to be preserved, any undue pressure would compel the molten matter to escape from the lowest opening this would be in accordance with the simplest laws of liquids then we should find volcanic action most vigorous at the lowest active volcano but such is not the case the idea of a uniformly liquid interior seems hardly tenable there is still other objection to this theory experiments have been made with various materials to ascertain the change effected in them by heat it is found that a block of granite five feet long by a change of 96 degrees in temperature is expanded 0.27792 of an inch crystalline marble 0.03264 sandstone 0.0549 if then a portion of the earth's crust 10 miles in thickness be heated 600 degrees its crust will be raised 200 feet or a change of one degree the rate of expansion being fairly uniform to 500 or 600 degrees, would raise the surface 4 inches. How important this matter is may be better understood when we consider that if the interior of the earth be uniformly molten mass, with a crust 10 miles thick, a contraction of one twelve thousandth of an inch should force out of the crust a cubic mile of lava. We should find, then, a change in temperature one forty-eight thousandth of a degree, should effect this if the crust were ten miles thick. We are then forced to conclude that the earth is not cooling to any appreciable extent, or that the liquid interior is still capable of indefinite compression without necessarily being forced out through orifices in the crust, or that the interior is not a uniformly molten mass. Such are the arguments against a melted interior the reader should avoid the assumption of a uniform rate of contraction or expansion of heat within very narrow limits such a hypothesis may be allowed but to assume that it is universal would be to affirm that if you could only make the earth cold enough it would shrink to nothing at all the earth and the temperature would swallow each other like the two snakes till neither was left to illustrate more seriously suppose a race of men existed whose only experience of temperature ranged between forty and two hundred degrees they could consistently calculate from the change of water between these limits that it would require a temperature of many thousands of degrees to expand it to seventeen hundred times its bulk yet we know they would have to raise it only to two hundred and twelve degrees to produce the required effect and if they could go below forty degrees they would be astonished to find The water then expanded instead of contracting. That the earth, if it cools, does so very slowly is clear, from the character of the materials thrown out. Lava from Mount Etna has been observed slowly moving, nine months after the eruption. Lower portions of the beds have been found to be abnormally heated ten years after pouring out. Compare the thickness of a lava bed with the depth from which it is thrown, and it will be seen that little heat is lost in the subterranean depths. One instance showing how slowly the lava is to part with its heat may be given. In the year 1828, a great mass of ice was discovered on Mount Etna. In consequence of the protracted heat of the season, supplies of ice at Catania and the adjacent regions failed entirely and the people suffered considerably for the want of an article considered necessary to health, as well as comfort, in that hot climate. The Catanian authorities caused search to be made for some crevasse or natural grotto on Mount Etna, where drift-snow might exist. Near the base of the highest cone was found a vast mass of ice, covered by a lava bed. How old it was there was no means of knowing, Nor can we tell how much of the ice might have originally been melted by the overflowing current, but there it was so hard and firm that the workmen quarried it with great difficulty. Lastly, it appears that the causes of earthquakes and volcanic action must be the same. A violent volcanic outbreak causes earthquake shocks at once, as though relieved by a safety valve. The experiments of mister Robert Mallet the best-known authority on earthquake phenomena, tend to prove that the shocks necessarily originate at a comparatively short distance below the surface. So, from two independent lines of investigation, the same conclusion is reached. These objections have caused inquiry to be made as to what causes might locally develop heat. There are so many possible methods that scientists may not be expected to unite. One is the chemical theory, Water coming in contact with quicklime or metallic sodium or potassium would evolve intense heat. One or two locomotives have been invented which need no fuel, obtaining their heat supply thus. But it is objected to this that the products of volcanic action are not such as would result from such a cause, that all experience indicates that water has already penetrated every portion of the earth, the deepest borings always crossing veins and all great mines requiring to be artificially drained. One other theory is that the slow contraction of the globe from the radiation of heat into space necessarily affects the outer portion most directly, and in consequence the shrinking of the crust at the weakest points produces unusual pressure there, which can involve intense heat, as is shown by the fact that nearly all rocks so twisted or strained Are more or less changed in their internal structure by heat it is also evident that a region once thus weakened and seriously broken would necessarily form a fairly permanent volcanic tract as the work of nature all goes to preserve equilibrium or balance of forces an unusual upheaval would necessitate unusual subsidence near at hand and in fact the highest mountain is always near the deepest ocean This explanation, combined with that of chemical action, seems to us the more tenable. None of these theories conflict with the nebular hypothesis of Kant and Laplace. In looking over the areas of volcanic action, we will find they have changed considerably from the areas of the past. In the continent of Europe there is but one active volcano, Vesuvius, but there are six others on islands in the Mediterranean. Africa has 4 active volcanoes on the west coast and 6 on the east, while 10 others are to be found on adjacent islands. Austria has no volcanoes, so far as is known. In Asia are 24 active volcanoes, but 12 of these are on the peninsula of Kamchatka. On the American continent we find a larger proportion. North America has 45, most of which are in Mexico and Central America, and South America has 37. Of these continental volcanoes, all are near the sea, except four which are reported to lie in the great unexplored tableland between Siberia and Tibet. And some are said to exist in the Chinese province of Manchuria. No white man has visited them. But it is in the island world that we must look for the most numerous volcanoes. A great ridge runs through the Atlantic, and along this lie a number of islands with active centres. Jan Mayan, in the Arctic Circle, has an active volcano. Iceland, 13. The Azores, 6. The Canaries, 3. East African Islands, 8. The West Indies, 6. Three submarine volcanoes have been observed at different times in the Atlantic but through the same region the number of extinct volcanoes is far greater of those which exist several seem approaching extinction but in the isles of the pacific and between the pacific and indian oceans we have a vast series of volcanic vents of wonderful activity in the aleutian islands are thirty-one in the kuril islands ten or more japan and the adjacent groups have twenty-five Southeast of the Asiatic continent is the most active region on the globe. Fifty volcanoes are here known. Farther south are four in New Guinea, one or two submarine vents, a number in New Britain, the Solomon Group, the New Hebrides, three in New Zealand and Erebus and Terra in the Antarctic Circle. Add to these the islands of the Central Pacific and we have more than one-half the volcanoes of the globe. Besides, there are a large number of nearly perfect volcanic cones, which must recently have become extinct. In conclusion, we find all the oceanic islands are either a volcanic or coral formation, and as we find that the coral polyp cannot live at a greater depth than 120 feet, as we know the ocean in the immediate neighbourhood of these islands to be many thousands of feet in depth, as we know coral islands to be circular, often enclosing a lagoon of water it is fair to suppose that the polyps have not built through long ages of subsidence as is usually supposed but that they have built upon the rims of extinct craters lying near the surface the fact that these circular reefs always have one or more breaks in their circuit is additional reason for the belief the fact of a coral island lying within a barrier reef then resolves itself into a volcanic crater with an inner cone as every active volcano has it is rather ludicrous to suppose that polyps among the lowest of creative beings leading an ephemeral existence should yet have such unanimity of purpose such perfect mutual understanding as to undertake to build their reefs in a more or less circular form it is preposterous to suppose the unvarying form of the structure is the result of mere chance clearly we must find some other influences and the most reasonable is to suppose the foundations of these islands were laid by the same agency that raised all other oceanic islands from the bed of the sea the volcano thus plays an important part in the earth's economy not only does it add to land areas by upheaval from the deep the amount of material thrown out by the javanese volcanoes alone during the past hundred years is greater far than all the silt borne to the sea by american rivers during the same period krakatoa in its recent eruption threw out more than the mississippi bears to the sea in sixty years there is some doubt as to how much volcanoes effect by direct upheaval the formation of many observed cones shows that the majority are mainly built up by the materials thrown out and not by any great elevation of the adjacent surface in the case of a volcano already existing it is of course not easy to know what proportion of its mass is merely accumulation of lava cinders or tufa as to the form of volcanic cones those of ashes cinders and scoria are of course steepest those of lava thrown out when liquid having a very gradual slope The difference may be readily illustrated by comparing a heap of sand and pebbles with a heap of stiffening molasses candy. One is steeply conical, the other rounded or dome-like. But either form of volcano may abound in crevices and apertures from which issue sulphurous vapours and gases. These fumaroles, as they are called, are usually surrounded with mineral deposits, often resembling the most delicate filigree work. Having considered the general phases and principles of volcanic action we may now notice some of the more famous eruptions of the past end of chapter 20
0: hey everyone it's me db New sponsor on the show, Clary. Clary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? glary has got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins. They've got saxophones, trumpets, drums. They've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20-watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under $80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on, folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that will tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, Uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Tell your ma, tell your pa, I'll ship you down to South Agua. You can buy that shirt now. It's in the shop. Uh, Link in the show notes.
2: Or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, And King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and The Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio.
3: Reporting by Pamela Nagami. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby. Chapter 21. Great Eruptions of Vesuvius. E'en while they cheered the gladiators thrust and shouted as the lion crunched his bones, up sprang the fire king from his age's sleep, shook wide his robe of ever-deepening night, and flung his fiery banner on the wind. The groaning earth then trembled at his tread, and thousand thunders rent the raging mount. While prince and pauper, mid the scorching gloom, groped through the gaping streets, the ocean hissed, and palaces and marble temples reeled, and crushed or prisoned still the ashes fell, till mansions, statues, homes and colonnades, and strength and beauty, love and life and death, lay heaps on heaps in one black ruin blent. For nearly 1700 years there lay beneath a sea of ashes near the Naples Bay a city whose destruction had not been described by the younger Pliny, and in the lapse of years its site had been forgotten. During the construction of an aqueduct in 1592, workmen frequently came upon foundations of buildings. No curiosity seems to have been aroused. Nearly a hundred years later, other buildings were discovered with the inscription Pompeii. Still there was no practical interest. Then the attention of the learned was drawn to the discoveries at Herculaneum and Alcubierre. a Spanish colonel of engineers in examining the subterranean canal, was led by the discovery of a house and statues to conjecture that some great treasures might lie buried there. Obtaining permission of the King of Naples, he began excavations in the year 1748. In a few days, he unearthed a picture of eleven palms long, by four and a half high, containing festoons of eggs, fruits, and flowers, the head of a man, large and in good style, a helmet, an owl, various small birds, and other objects. Then was found the skeleton of a man, covered with the lava mud. By his side were eighteen brass coins and one of silver then was found an amphitheater with a seating capacity of 10,000. But the work was poorly conducted, valuable pictures were detached from the walls, and the buildings again covered with rubbish. No strangers were allowed to copy anything. When the French occupied Naples, the work was for a time better conducted, then it again declined. When Victor Emmanuel became king of Italy, a distinguished antiquarian scholar, Giuseppe Fiorelli, was appointed director-general of the works. Since then, the work has been well done. Signor Fiorelli, noting that every appearance or fragment which might afford or suggest a restoration of any part of a buried edifice, replacing with fresh timbers every charred beam, propping every tottering wall or portion of brickwork till the tourist sees today a town in the integrity of its outlines and order of its arrangement temples baths markets tombs stand out just as they stood eighteen hundred years ago the villa of the port, the forum, the counting-house, the baker's shop, the schoolroom, the kitchen carry us into the very heart of roman life in the brightest days of the empire. The jewelry of beauty, the spade of the laborer, the fetter of the prisoner, and the weapon of the soldier are all there, reproducing and realizing the past with a vividness which can scarcely be conceived. Relics and historic records give us an ideal of the past. How correct is the ideal may be inferred from the fact that no two antiquarians have the same conception of a Druid temple. With all the details of Scripture and Josephus, we have not an exact model of the temple. Inhabited ruins change with their possessors. Those uninhabited decay in the War of Elements but Pompeii was, so to speak, hermetically sealed, in the height of its prosperity, preserved from Goths and Vandals, and is laid before us today as it stood over eighteen centuries ago, allowing us to see how sudden was the storm that burst upon it long years ago. The paintings are undimmed by the leaden touch of time, household furniture left in the confusion of use, Articles even of intrinsic value abandoned in the hurry of escape, yet safe from the robber or scattered about from the trembling hand which could not pause or stoop for its most valuable possessions, and in some instances the bones of the inhabitants bearing sad testimony to the suddenness and completeness of the calamity that overwhelmed them. There are the very ruts which were made by the wheels of chariots, flying, perhaps, from the impending ruin. There are water-pipes, in the cavities of which, sealed by the hand of time, the splashing fluid can still be heard. There are rude and grotesque inscriptions, scratched by some loiterer on the stucco, and as fresh as when they excited the mirth of the passer-by. There are eggshells, bones of fish and chickens, and other fragments of a repast, of which skeletons lying near were partaking when the catastrophe overwhelmed them. There is fuel ready to be supplied to furnaces for heating the baths. There are the stains left upon the counters of drinking shops by wet glasses. There are the vials of the apothecary, still containing the fluids he was wont to dispense, There are ovens in which loaves of bread, carbonized but otherwise perfect, may yet be seen. There are vases with olives still swimming in oil, the fruit retaining its flavor, and the oil burning readily when submitted to the flame. There are shelves on which are piled stores of raisins, figs, and chestnuts. There are amphorae containing the rare wine for which Campania was so famous." here you saw a new altar of white marble wondrously beautiful just from the hands of the sculptor an enclosure was building all round the mortar just dashed against the side of the wall was but half spread out you saw the long sliding stroke of the trowel about to return and obliterate its own track but it never returned the hand of the workman was suddenly arrested and the whole looked so fresh and new that you would almost swear that the mason had only gone to his dinner and about to come back immediately to smooth the roughness. The younger Pliny tells us of his uncle's death and of the suddenness of the calamity. The people were in the amphitheatre when the volcano burst forth. The elder Pliny, in command of the fleet at Misenum, was called by his sister to notice a strange cloud that it just appeared. He had just returned from a walk, bathed, and gone to his study. This was August twenty-fourth, A.D. 79, about 1 p.m. The dense cloud occasionally glowed with light. Again it was of inky blackness. It was the Pine Tree Banner, since become so familiar to the Neapolitans. Pliny at once started for his galleys, determined to have a closer view of the strange scene. As he went to the shore he received a note from a lady who lived at the base of the mountain, urging him to come to her assistance. He set out at once to render what aid he could, for the villas stood extremely thick upon that lovely coast. They neared the mountain. Cinders, pumice, ashes, and glowing stones fell on and among the vessels, Sternly ordering the frightened crew to press on, Pliny stood in the bow of his vessel, calmly dictating notes and observations on the awful scene. Reaching Stabiae, he found a friend in great fear, preparing for flight and waiting for a change of wind. Pliny ordered baths and sat calmly down to supper, assuring his friend that the lurid flames on the mountainside were but villages fired by the heated stones. RETIRING TO REST, HIS ANXIOUS FRIENDS HEARD HIM SNORING. FINDING THEY WERE ABOUT TO BE ENTOMBED IN THE FALLING CINDERS, THEY ROUSED HIM, AND ALL, TYING PILLOWS ON THEIR HEADS AS PROTECTION FROM THE SHOWERS OF STONES, SOUGHT THE SEASHORE, BUT THE WAVES RAN TOO HIGH FOR THEM TO EMBARK. IT WAS STILL DARK AS EREBUS IN THE LIMIT OF THE CLOUD, THOUGH ALREADY BROAD DAY. Drinking some water, Pliny stretched himself on a mat, but an unusual rush of sulfurous vapor compelled the company to disperse, and two servants assisted him to rise. But he at once fell back dead. Perhaps the noxious vapors were in greater quantity near the ground. His nephew tells us he always had weak lungs. The company fled. Three days later, Pliny's body was found looking more like a man asleep than dead. At Misenum, fourteen miles away, the earth was constantly and violently shaken. Houses were toppled down, chariots could not be steadied, even by supporting them with large stones. The sea rushed back, leaving many marine animals stranded high and dry. The dark cloud on Vesuvius flamed and roared. The cloud enveloped Misenum and spread to Capri. Nothing was to be heard but the shrieks of women and children and the cries of men. Some were calling for their children, others for their parents, others for their husbands, and only distinguishing each other by their voices. One was lamenting his own fate, another that of his family. Some wished to die that they might escape the dreadful fear of death, but the greater part imagined that the last and eternal night was come, which was to destroy the gods and the world together. Then came the flash of flames, then darkness and ashes, blinding, crushing, burying. Stabii also was buried, but the destruction of the two great cities is given no word. It was sudden and complete. The ruins show they were shattered by an earthquake, then showers of broken lava rushed upon Herculaneum, while Pompeii, further away, was reached only by the cinder showers. Dion Cassius tells us the people were seated in the theaters when the shock came. In their terror, every object was distorted and magnified. A multitude of men of superhuman stature resembling giants appeared, sometimes on the mountains, sometimes in the environs, Stones and smoke were thrown out, then the giants seemed to rise again while the sounds of trumpets were heard. Cassius, however, wrote a century and a half after the disaster, and the chief value of his testimony is to show how terrible and lasting an impression had been made upon the Campanians from whom he derived his narrative. After the desolation, the site of Pompeii was searched for such relics as might be of practical use elsewhere the search was rough and destructive. The emperor, Alexander Severus, made the place a sort of quarry from which he drew a great quantity of marbles, columns, and beautiful statues, which he employed in adorning the edifices which he constructed at Rome. Modern research has discovered but few gold and silver articles, coins and statues. It has developed, however, a far more fearful and faithful picture of the eruption than has been given by any historian. The clouds of falling ashes so enveloped each object as to preserve an exact impression from which casts have been made, showing every curve and line even to the texture of the clothes, so we look upon the death agony and conceive the terrors of the scene. Here is the arena. Here are skeletons, perhaps of gladiators already slain, perhaps of wounded men, unable to rise, who rolled and gasped, and struggled in the choking gloom. There is a prison. You may see the fetters still round the leg-bones of the inmates. Here stood the temple of Isis. On that pedestal was a beautiful image of her, draped in purple and gold. In the next room lay a priest beside the battered wall, with axe in hand, In the next room sat a priest overtaken at his dinner. In other cloisters lay other priests who had remained at the temple, perhaps deeming Isis would protect them in that awful hour. Close by the prison door lay a skeleton with a handful of silver coins. Mayhap someone had perished there while endeavoring to bribe the jailer to release a prisoned friend. Close by that column in his narrow niche, A Roman sentry stood, full-armed, obeying to the last, stern, unflinching obedience to superior powers who neglected to relieve him in the terror of the time. In the vault of a beautiful suburban villa of Diomed lay eighteen adults, a boy and an infant, huddled together in attitudes terribly expressive of the agony of a lingering death. To the skulls of the children still clung their long, blonde hair. There was the impress left by the bust of a young girl of striking beauty. Near the garden gate, without the house, were two skeletons, one with a bunch of keys and a quantity of money, the other with a number of silver vases. Doubtless the family had thought to escape by retiring to the well-provisioned cellar, while two slaves endeavored to profit by the confusion to escape with their booty. The stifling, sulfurious vapor found them out. In the house of the fawn stood the skeleton of a woman, her hands raised over her head. Her scattered jewels lay about the floor. Endeavouring at length to leave the house, she found the doorway blocked with ashes. The flooring of the upper rooms began to fall, and she lifted her arms in vain attempt to stay the crumbling roof. Thus was she found. In a garden, nearby, a woman was found seven feet from the earth. She had surmounted many obstacles, but perished as she scaled a wall. Beneath the staircase lay a man who had with him a vast treasure of gold and silver. He had preserved it at a terrible cost. Nearby were five others who had met a similar fate. They lay fifteen feet above the earth. Plunderers were these, "'overpowered by a rush of mephitic gas "'while delving for buried treasures. "'Here lay two bodies, feet to feet, "'mother and daughter, perhaps. "'The former lay outstretched and tranquil, "'the young girl of fifteen, "'in an attitude expressive of frightful agony. "'Her legs are drawn up, her hands clenched. "'With one hand she has drawn her veil about her head "'to screen herself from the ashes and smoke.' The form and texture of her dress are clearly seen, and through its rents the fair young skin appears like polished marble. Close by, a young woman of high rank, young, richly dressed and beautiful, one upraised arm and her clenched hands tell plainer than words her agony and despair. A man, tall, stalwart, in coarse dress and nail-studded sandals, lay at hand, Upon his back, with straightened limbs and extended arms, he had resolved, since unable to escape, to die like a man. His powerful features are clearly shown, and a portion of his mustache adheres to the plaster cast. Such are sights, from which the veil of time has at last been lifted. How many perished in that fearful outbreak, we shall never know. 700 skeletons have been found in one-third of the city of Pompeii. Perhaps two thousand perished there. But of the scores who fled from the city, from suburban villas, from villages along the mountain, and who were overtaken by the fiery storm ere they reached a place of safety, who shall tell? Who may declare the fate of the lady who appealed to the Roman admiral Pliny for relief? Such questions each may determine for himself history will preserve an eternal silence. Such are the facts concerning the first great historic eruption of Vesuvius. That volcanic phenomena were known to the ancients we have already seen, but the character of Vesuvius seems to have been unsuspected. The Greeks knew of the mountain top as a depressed plain covered with groves and wild vines. Spartacus and his gladiators, with their thousands of followers, had their fortified camp there. Strabo called it a volcanic mountain, but Pliny the Elder did not include it in his list of volcanoes. The fertile, rounded slopes were covered with well-tilled fields. But the neighboring regions were active, though Vesuvius was not. Pithecusa, the modern Ischia, was often and terribly shaken, and various attempts to settle upon it were in consequence abandoned. Poisonous gases poured forth even when there was no active eruption. Still nearer Vesuvius lay the noted lake Avernus, which in Roman mythology was the gateway of hell. It was said to exhale noxious vapors so powerful that birds could not cross it. At the present day it is only a pretty lake, without any unusual properties. It appears to cover an extinct crater. In the year 63, A great earthquake was felt in the Vesuvian region. Hundreds of lives were lost, and great damage was done in many cities, and numerous lighter shocks occurred during the next sixteen years. No one seems to have apprehended any danger from the mountain. How long it had remained dormant is unknown. But Pompeii and Herculaneum were both built upon lava beds. That Pompeii itself was a very old city is clearly established. In general outline, it is elliptical, nearly two miles in circuit, the entire area being 160 acres. Characters upon many of the foundation stones would seem to indicate a period earlier than the Etruscan occupation, while other portions, especially the towers, are certainly of later date. It is quite fair to suppose that Vesuvius from these facts had lain quiet for a thousand years or more. One effect of this first eruption of Vesuvius was to break down the western wall of the crater and destroy the entire side of the mountain next the sea, leaving, as the only remains of the ancient crater, a little ridge on the south flank and that portion which under the name of Soma still encircles the present cone. From the time of its first eruption, the restlessness of Vesuvius has been well observed. The next action occurred in the year 203. In the meantime, the sides of the crater had become overgrown with brushwood and forest trees, and the basin itself was a favorite haunt of wild boars. In the year 472, the mountain broke forth with more violence than at either of the former periods. The roaring was simply indescribable. The clouds of ashes spread over the entire adjacent region houses toppled down miles away scores of people were suffocated the ashes fell in showers at constantinople and tripoli other eruptions followed in five twelve six eighty five and nine ninety three no stream of molten lava issued at any of these but in 1036 a great eruption took place, during which we are told the lava poured forth from fissures in the sides as well as from the top and ran in a broad deep stream into the sea. Thirteen years later, another similar outbreak occurred, then ninety years passed without any disturbance. Of these eruptions, little beyond the bare fact is known, but from the time of the last one referred to, 1139, scientific men have carefully watched each outbreak. In 1198, the neighboring crater of Solfatara Lake was in eruption. In 1302, Ischia, dormant over 1400 years, exhibited wonderful activity, For more than a year earthquakes shook the island, and at length there burst forth a lava stream from the southeast side of the mountain, flowing two miles to the sea. Many houses were destroyed during the two months' eruption, and not a few of the inhabitants abandoned the island. But Vesuvius was quiet until 1306. Again it broke forth in 1500, During this time, Etna was in a state of unwanted activity. The eruption of 1538 broke forth at the foot of the mountain and was marked by some peculiar features. The plain between Avernus, Monte Barbaro and the sea was first raised a little and many cracks made in it, from some of which water issued. The sea retreated about two hundred paces, leaving many fish on the sands at the disposal of the people of Pazzuoli, a little watering place on the Bay of Baiai. On the evening of September twenty-ninth, numerous shocks of earthquake occurred, and about two o'clock in the night an immense fissure opened near the lake and extended toward the town. Smoke, fire, stones, and mud made of ashes were vomited furiously, the whole process being attended by a terrible roaring as of continual loudest thunder. Stones and masses of pumice, larger than an ox, were thrown out. The gulf in the town widened, and not a few houses were broken to pieces or swallowed up in the chasm. The large stones were thrown about as high as a crossbow would carry, and then fell sometimes into the lake, sometimes into the chasm again, but mostly upon either side of it the mud was ash-colored very liquid at first but rapidly thickening and within thirty-two hours the site of pozzuoli was covered by a volcanic cone a contemporary chronicler present at the time says this cone was one thousand paces in height by which he probably meant slant height the cone at present is four hundred and forty feet above the bay of naples two days later it again began to cast forth stones and ashes and again on the seventh day several persons who had ascended the hill were killed in this sudden outbreak by falling stones or smothered by the sulphurous vapours this monte nuovo or new mountain is a mile and a half in circumference at the base and four hundred and twenty-one feet deep it is apparent then that its bottom is nineteen feet above the sea level the Lucrine Lake, was almost filled up. Only a shallow pool remains. Falcone writes that from Naples the flames were seen bursting forth in the night, between the hot baths and the Tripergola. The next morning might be seen the poor people flying in terror, begrimed with the black and muddy shower which continued throughout the day. Flying from death, death was painted in their countenances. Some bore their children in their arms, some carried sacks full of goods, some led donkeys loaded with valuables or such as were unable to walk. The few eruptions after 1039 had been feeble. We find the mountain coming to be regarded as extinct as a volcanic crater. Nearly five centuries passed. Braccini, who visited it in 1631, writes that the crater was about five miles in circumference and above a thousand feet deep. Its sides were covered with brushwood, and at the bottom was a plain on which cattle grazed. In the woody parts, wild boars frequently harbored. In one part of the plain, covered with ashes, were three small pools, one filled with hot and bitter water, another saltier than the sea, and a third hot but tasteless. Such was the general character of the crater, A.D. 78, save that it was not so deep. In December 1631, with a sudden tremendous roar, the mountain flamed into action. This outbreak has never been surpassed in fury and destructiveness by any eruption of Vesuvius unless we accept the one which destroyed Pompeii. The fatalities between the two eruptions had been few, the most of the mischief being done to property. One of the eruptions failed to throw out any marked amount of matter of any sort. But in 1631 the woods and pastures, vines and fields within the crater were annihilated. Explosion followed explosion in swift succession. The great crater was filled with molten rock, stream after stream poured swiftly forth till seven rivers of fire were desolating the land crops were fired by the cinder showers millions of tons of ashes were scattered over the land the mountain slopes were dotted with ruined villages Resina, a populous little town on the site of herculaneum was completely destroyed Storms of wind and rain swept the mountain, and huge rivers of mud buried whatever had escaped the lava and ashes. The crater itself was shattered and nearly destroyed. Hundreds of cattle were destroyed by the fiery storm. Not less than 1,800 people perished in this great convulsion. Thirty-five years later, another outbreak occurred, and since then, the mountain has been in constant activity." the next unusual activity of a special note occurred in 1737. Breisloch has estimated the outflow of lava at 10,237,096 cubic meters, enough to cover a square mile 12 and a half feet in depth. Immense quantities of white ashes were thrown out, and the entire mountain was filled with rents and fissures from which poured volumes of noxious vapors that suffocated man and beast. The quantity of ashes thrown out doubtless exceeded the volume of lava. In 1766 occurred another unusual convulsion. The mountain continued vigorously active from March till December, vomiting lava streams and huge volcanic bombs. These last are masses of lava enclosing a bubble of gas, which is set free by the breaking of the bomb as it falls. In 1779, the lava streams for a time threatened Naples itself. Sir William Hamilton, longtime English ambassador in Italy, has left a careful record of the eruption of 1793, 1794, Passing by such features as common to all its eruptions, we have noted elsewhere, we may note the more striking particulars. Millions of heated stones were thrown high in the air and fell in beautiful curves about the cone. It might be likened to the bursting stars of our pyrotechnic displays. Nearly half Vesuvius was covered with flame, Huge masses of white smoke were vomited forth by the disturbed mountain and formed themselves at a height of many thousands of feet above the crater into a huge, ever-moving canopy, through which, from time to time, were hurled pitch-black jets of volcanic dust and dense vapors mixed with cascades of red-hot rocks and scoriae. The rain from the cloud canopy was scalding hot. As the lava rushed forth from its imprisonment, it streamed a liquid, white, and brilliantly pure river, which burned for itself a smooth channel through a great arched chasm in the side of the mountain. It flowed with the clearness of honey in regular channels, cut finer than art can imitate, and glowing with all the splendor of the sun. Various were the effects of stones thrown in, Light bodies of five, ten, or fifteen pounds weight made no impression, but bodies of sixty, seventy, or eighty pounds were seen to form a kind of bed on the surface of the lava and float away with it. A stone of three hundred weight that had been thrown out by the crater lay near the source of the current of lava. I raised it up on one end and let it fall in upon the liquid lava, when it gradually sank beneath the surface and disappeared. If I wished to describe the manner in which it acted upon the lava, I should say that it was like a loaf of bread thrown into a bowl of very thick honey, which gradually involves itself in the heavy liquid and then slowly sinks to the bottom. As it flowed down the mountain, the brilliant whiteness disappeared. Then it began to wrinkle, where, flowing slowly like the cream on a pan of milk when poured off, crusts formed which were speedily cracked to pieces as the current underneath them pressed on. On such crusts a person may cross the stream, if not particular as to singeing his boots, Being cooled when near the bottom, yet forced on by the pressure behind, the whole mass resembled nothing so much as a heap of unconnected cinders from an iron foundry, rolling slowly along and falling with a rattling noise over one another. This eruption continued from February 1793 to July 1794. Rocks were hurled 2,000 feet into the air, The lava flowed from fifteen different sources, and pouring on one stream from twelve to forty feet thick, flowed three hundred and eighty feet into the sea, requiring but six hours from the time of the outbreak to reach the shore. The sea boiled for one hundred yards around. The town of Torre del Greco was destroyed, and a number of persons were killed. The natives insisted When the paroxysm was over on rebuilding on the old site. The Neapolitans have a jest concerning their own exemption from the calamities which Torre has endured. Naples sins and Torre is punished. The lava of this discharge is estimated at about 21 million cubic meters. Several eruptions of Vesuvius have occurred during the present century. Of these, the most notable are those of 1822 and 1872. They have given us exact information upon a point where formerly there was only conjecture, namely the height which the material thrown out may reach. In 1822 the ashes for twelve days fell in a continuous shower, the lava which had boiled up and hardened till the appearance of a depressed crater was lost was blown away, An immense abyss was formed, three-fourths of a mile in length and two thousand feet deep. The entire top of the cone was then blown away. Masses of lava weighing many tons were hurled two or three miles. Darkness prevailed in broad day, as far away as Amalfi, where the ashes fell to the depth of several inches. The dense column of ashes and vapour were thrown 10,000 feet above the level of the sea. In no known eruption has the electrical display been so brilliant and continuous. The roll of thunder could be clearly distinguished from the rumble of the volcano. In recent years, an observatory has been erected on the mountain, and all its phenomena carefully noted. During the eruption of 1872, instantaneous photography was pressed into service. A comparison of the whole view with the height of the mountain showed that the vapors and fragments were thrown 20,000 feet into the air, nearly four miles. This outburst began on April 24th and reached its climax in two days. The entire mountain, filled with fissures and cracks, in the words of Professor Palmieri, sweated fire, Enormous volumes of steam poured from the crater with such a prodigious roar that the terrified Neapolitans rushed from their houses and spent the night in the open air. The lava floods rushed down the mountainside, and one of them destroyed two villages, besides many country houses adjacent. The whole region, for several days, quivered with shocks of earthquake. Such have been the most important eruptions of Vesuvius. Vesuvius. Its position by an ancient and populous city has made it the most celebrated of volcanoes. There seems no doubt that it is supplied from the same source which feeds the others in the neighborhood as well as Mount Etna. When Vesuvius is quiet, Etna is active and vice versa. Close observation has established a well-defined daily periodicity, so that the most favorable period for visiting the crater may always be known beforehand. In fine, about sixty eruptions of Vesuvius are on record. Of these, twenty-three were during the last century, and twenty-five during this. The activity of the entire region seems on the increase. End of chapter 21
1: do you like the tv series tales from the crypt are you interested in full episode and movie reviews from tales from the crypt this podcast is for you the good evening kitties podcast where i melissa your ghostess with the mostess recap every episode with special guests and bonus horror movie reviews the good evening kitties podcast can be found on most podcast platforms check it out today